0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land.
1: So what have you got for us today, Tegan?
0: I have got a story for you that involves alcohol – weight loss drugs and monkeys from a tropical island and reporter Shelby Trainer has been looking into how video games are helping people with traumatic brain injury get active.
1: Monkeys (laughs) from a tropical island. Oh
0: yeah, it's it's worth the wait, that one. But you've got a, a story on mistakes with a twist.
1: Yeah, mistakes made in making diagnoses. It's been called the underwater iceberg of healthcare and lots of people listening to us have experienced a delayed or misdiagnosis.
0: Why an iceberg?
1: Because they're hidden from view, these mistakes. But now a huge study has measured the problem of diagnostic error and exposed it for all of us to see. And it's scary. The researcher who led the study was Professor David Newman-Toker, who's director of the Centre for Diagnostic Excellence at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Thanks for having me, Norman. We should really define what we're talking about here. I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about misdiagnoses, late diagnoses, wrong diagnoses.
2: That's often the terminology that people use, missed, wrong, or delayed. If you delve too deeply into the distinction between those things, they start to get blurry. The distinction between a a missed and a delayed diagnosis isn't entirely clear. Some people think that if you've missed it prior to the person's death and it's only discovered at autopsy, you would call it missed. But those sorts of distinctions are probably not material. We've used the National Academy of Medicine definition of diagnostic error, which is a diagnosis that's the failure to render an accurate and timely diagnosis and then to communicate that to the patient. So any of those failures would be considered a diagnostic error in the way we did the analysis. So how did you
1: decide, before you started grossing up to this large-scale study, how did you decide what the diagnostic error was, say, with heart attacks and strokes or
2: various cancers or infections? We used multiple different data sources to be able to get this approximation. We took the following approach to the math that was sort of at a high level, fairly simple math. It was the frequency of these diseases that were the usual suspects for causing serious harm when they're missed, such as stroke and heart attack and sepsis and lung cancer, etc. Then we multiplied that by the error rates on a per-disease basis from systematic reviews and other syntheses of error rates in the literature. And then we added an estimate of the rate of harms associated with those errors when they occurred. We multiplied all those things together and then summed across all the diseases and we had some extrapolation techniques. And then ultimately, we validated it about nine different ways to make sure that we weren't too far off from the
1: truth. So more than 300,000 deaths a year is what you estimated, and more, almost 500,000 people permanently disabled.
2: Yes, that's right. In total, about 800,000 Americans each year dying or permanently disabled, what we called serious harms.
1: So let's boil it down, because you looked quite specifically at various conditions, and if I read your paper correctly, we're getting pretty good at diagnosing heart attacks, but we're still pretty lousy at strokes. So the heart attack diagnostic area was about 1.5%, but strokes were up at 17%, and some forms of sepsis infection were up at 60%, and lung cancer was pretty high
2: too. Yes. The disparity between stroke and heart attack, I think, is one worth drawing out for your listeners, because there's about a tenfold difference in the error rate between the two, yet... Both affect about the same number of people each year, at least in America. It's on the order of magnitude of a million people each year who suffer a stroke or a transient ischemic attack, the same for heart attack. And you would hope that diseases of kind of equal frequency or incidence would be diagnosed about equally well. It's unsurprising that some of the diseases, like you alluded to, spinal abscess, which is misdiagnosed. Upwards of 55 or 60 percent of the time, but that's a disease that affects just ten or 20,000 people a year in the United States compared to a million. So it would be less surprising to people that there would be a higher error rate with a rarer disease. But for stroke and heart attack, that disparity is real and important, and it tells us two things. The first it tells us is that we probably have underemphasized the training around stroke diagnosis, neurological diagnosis, and otherwise, and we haven't created systems of care to improve But it also tells us that it's possible to do. Heart attack has been studied extensively, and there's been a lot of work done over the last 50 years building out uh, physiologic tests like electrocardiography, biomarker tests like troponin enzymes, creating chest pain care pathways to make sure that people are getting sped the quickest diagnosis and quickest treatment protocols possible, and quality measures to verify that so there's a feedback loop yeah. more so the than there is,
1: there is with stroke. But, I mean, lung cancer and other cancers can be complicated. I mean, doctors attend, in medical school tend to be taught, well, new cough, cough with blood. But when you look at lung cancer as a whole, those are not necessarily the symptoms that somebody will walk into the doctor with.
2: Yes, I think it's true that when you start getting into cancer diagnosis, you enter into a, a kind of a new territory. In the cancer cases... Sometimes it's something like a failure to close the loop on a test result. So, for example, if a patient gets a chest X-ray in the emergency department just as a routine when they're there for abdominal pain or some other complaint, and then a nodule is found, and that nodule is presumed to be dealt with by some primary care provider on the outside, but that So never the system is
1: at fault rather than any one individual?
2: <laughs> That's correct. So we know that some of the cases of cancer fit that Description in other cases though it 's a failure to pursue risk factors or findings in colorectal cancer cases, for example, sometimes an iron deficiency anemia is chalked up to something else besides the search for a colorectal cancer that 's underlying as the cause. people say whenever there 's these kind of data from
1: the United States, at least in Australia, the doctors organizations. Run the wagons into a circle and said, Oh, America's different, it's not like us. And yet, when Australian research is done, particularly on uh, injuries in healthcare, we look pretty similar to the United States, in fact, uh, pro rata. But often it's said, Oh, it's the patient's fault because they sit at home with their symptoms and don't turn up in hospital and so on. It's their fault. Can we blame patients for this?
2: Well, I think it's a bad idea to blame anyone for this other than the failures to create systems of care that have adequate safety nets to protect patients. There's definitely a component of the problem that relates to what's sometimes called the patient interval, which is the gap between the time that a patient first experiences some kind of medical symptom to the time that they seek care. Data from the UK, for example, show that The patient interval is a significant contributor to diagnostic delay in cancer cases. I would say that there are definitely things that we want to be doing in our healthcare systems to raise public awareness of symptoms that might be clues to dangerous underlying diseases.
1: But on the other hand, you hear story after story. I've been to see the doctor. I told them there was something wrong. They ignored me and told me it was just a, a little headache and I'll get over it. And it turned out to be cancer. I mean, you hear those stories again and again and again, where the person knows there's something wrong with them and the system really turns their face not against them but just says it's something else
2: we hear that routinely in the diagnostic error community it's rare that we encounter a patient who has been misdiagnosed who doesn't say that exact thing i was telling the doctor and they weren't listening and there is a big component of that that comes into play here where clinicians sometimes just don't want to hear or can't hear what the patients are saying to them whether they're moving too quickly or they've got their own conception of how the diagnosis should happen and they're not quite hearing what the patient has to say, it's definitely an issue that we hear about repeatedly.
1: So the messages I've got here is don't blame the patient. Doctors need to listen better. But the system really is the problem in terms of capturing people, not losing them to the system. But isn't this one of the uses that's productive for AI? I mean, for example, if you've got somebody with pancreatic cancer or ovarian cancer, the symptoms can be incredibly complicated. We've covered this on the Health Report with Professor John Emery at the University of Melbourne, who stu- Emery, who studies this. Is this is a place where AI can help
2: the doctor out because the complexity of symptom patterns can be beyond the human brain almost. I certainly think that in the long run, artificial intelligence and other forms of uh, diagnostic decision support will help us make better diagnoses. I still think we're a little bit away from that, not because the technology for artificial intelligence isn't robust enough, but because the data sets on which the artificial intelligence systems are trained are not robust enough. So we don't actually have the kinds of electronic, well-vetted data that can lead to better diagnoses than are actually made in current practice. The best we can do right now is essentially train AI and machine learning systems to be as bad as we are currently, so to speak. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> But that will eventually happen, and certainly there are many of us that are working towards that by trying to create better data sets on which to train AI systems. In the meantime, though, there are plenty of opportunities in front of us to be able to improve things, and that includes being better about listening, engaging with patients, better teamwork with our colleagues, creating better training mechanisms to identify high-risk clinical presentations where we know that there are these sort of recurrent pitfalls of missed things, and giving people better feedback on their performance, which we currently do not do well. One of the critical issues in diagnosis is that when we look at the underlying causes for diagnostic error, we frequently see that the recurring theme is a failure of bedside diagnosis. And that point is important because it gives us a window into how we might fix these problems. Essentially what we need to do is find ways to deliver more expertise to the point of care in the encounter between the doctor and patient and there are many ways to do that.
1: By bedside you mean the clinic as well so the doctor's office as well as the bedside in the hospital?
2: When I say bedside I mean the in the clinical encounter, whether that's in an examination room in the outpatient or, or in the hospital or in an emergency department, that interaction, the act of taking histories and physical exams, some of which has become sort of a lost art in the technological progress that we've seen over the years, is something that we really need to restore. We need to really get back to better bedside diagnosis we've seen that when we do this for problems like stroke manifesting as dizziness, for example, that we can actually significantly reduce the misdiagnosis rates.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. It
2: was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Norman. Professor David Newman-Toker from the
1: Centre for Diagnostic Excellence at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And you're with The Health Report.
0: Hey, Norman, let me tell you a story about monkeys
1: worms last week monkeys this (laughs) what is this the animal report not the health report what's going on
0: i think i might sort of yeah make more of a case for a zoological report but for now i'm going to tell you a story there is a group of islands in the caribbean that has a population of very cute monkeys vervet monkeys but if you're a tourist there you'd better watch out because these monkeys have quite particular appetites they love a drink
1: you mean an alcoholic drink
0: Yes, yes, to the point where they're known to swipe tourist drinks if they doze off on the beach or something.
1: Okay, so you've got Glaswegian monkeys. (laughs) Why are we talking about this on the health report?
0: Well, these monkeys, its I just find this so fascinating. They're helping researchers understand more about addiction. It's an interesting backstory. The monkeys originally came over from Africa around the time of the slave trade, and they developed a taste for alcohol because of the naturally fermenting cane juice they found in the sugar cane fields, and since then, as well as becoming a Bit of a tourist attraction. They've also become a really useful population to researchers looking into alcohol addiction
1: in humans. Oh, sort of a natural experiment.
0: Yeah, so they're quite well researched. The research has been going into these vervet monkeys for about twenty-five or thirty years even though they've got a reputation for being uh, quite boozy, there's actually a fairly consistent distribution of drinking habits throughout their population. Some of them are quite heavy drinkers. Most are what we would actually call social drinkers. They literally will only drink when they're with their friends. And some are actually teetotalers.
1: Oh, so a reasonable spread, but that's old research. Why are we talking about it now?
0: Right. So there's been more recent studies working with these monkeys to look into a potential treatment for alcohol addiction. But this story is ticking a whole lot of hot topic boxes because it involves um, a class of weight loss drugs that are in quite short supply at the moment because they are so popular.
1: Ah, semaglutide or
0: You got it. It's the active ingredient in drugs like Azempic and Wegovi. They're showing effectiveness in helping people lose weight, so the thought is maybe they might help suppress other appetites as well. The research has moved on from monkeys now to humans, and one of the pioneers of this research is Anna Fink Jensen from Copenhagen.
3: Some of the uh, diabetes patients who were put on this compound, they just reported back that they had less interest in alcohol. And then we went back into our laboratories and tested these compounds in mice and rats and saw that if you gave them, for instance, cocaine, and you could measure the increase of dopamine in the reward system, then it was less pronounced if they were pre-treated with these compounds.
0: So it seems to me that the animal studies are pretty compelling, but the human studies sort of haven't quite shown the same dimension of Mm. addiction treatment as you might have hoped.
3: We're the only one who did a clinical study until now in people with alcohol use disorder. What we did in that study was we combined it with therapy. So they got cognitive therapy, all the patients, and half of them got exenatide, which is an older compound and not as potent as semaglutide. And there we saw in both groups that there was a 50% reduction in, you know, number of heavy drinking days and total alcohol intake. But it was the same in both groups. On the other hand, if we did imaging studies and we put people in scanners and we show them pictures of alcohol or more neutral pictures, then we could see the alcohol pictures would just increase the activity in the reward system and we could dampen that with the exenotide.
0: What do you hope comes out of this research? What would you like to see in terms of a treatment down the track?
3: If you compare to cancer treatment or heart treatment, there's so much new things happening, right? And it doesn't really happen in psychiatry, and especially perhaps not in uh, addiction area. So that would be wonderful if there was something new coming up. I think there's a general effect on the craving or lightening for alcohol. But the thing is, of course, if you take it as self-medication because you have a psychiatric problem... I mean, it doesn't really matter, I think, if you have the craving or not really. That's not the whole story. So the issue with alcohol use disorder is also compared to a lot of other diseases that a certain population of our patients with alcohol use disorder, they don't regard it as a problem and they don't think that it's necessary to be medicated.
0: You were talking about the fact that part of the way that the semaglutide and similar drugs seem to work is that they are dampening the reward part of the brain. Is there a risk that You're dampening the desire for the drink, but you're also maybe dampening joy?
3: Of course, and I thought everybody should have. And there's no data on it until now. I think in the obesity field, perhaps people are just getting more happy because they lose their weight and they can function better again and so on. But it has to be looked into, I think. And we have in our schizophrenia trials, we didn't see anything there in this specific group patients. But of course, these side effects have to be looked into. Until now, there's no definite report on it.
0: They're having so much of a moment at the moment with weight loss. Obviously, they seem to be really good with diabetes. Now you're saying that they might be good for addiction. Is this a miracle drug?
3: If you've been in the field for many years, you have seen this over time, over and over again, that there's new compounds coming up, and it seems that it basically works against everything. There's also used studies in Alzheimer's disease now with semaglutide. So data looks promising, but we have to see over the long run how much. All this is more you know, anecdotal, to be honest. It's also interesting. I looked into, there was an article in, in New York Times, and there were more than 800 people responding. And a lot of these people, of course, are saying something about, wow, this is what happened for me too. I lost my interest and I was drinking too much. But we were sure that there would be an effect in our clinical study on the main you know, outcome. But again, there wasn't. And it may be because we combine it with effective therapy. So there was so much reduction already. And then the compound.
0: So if I call you up in five years and ask you how we're going with semaglutides, similar drugs and addiction. What do you expect you'll be saying to me?
3: I expect I would say that for sure that it's been shown that there's an effect in the general population on uh, alcohol use disorder and hopefully there will be part of people with alcohol addiction who would benefit from this compound. And I don't expect everybody to do it, but I expect there will be a certain group that will have an effect. And at that time, you know, there will be probably... Our study will be finished and three or four, five studies from US will be finished at that time. So therefore, we will also have some hard data and not just, uh, you know, speculations.
0: I'll be sure to call you back in five years. Anas, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, that would be nice.
3: (laughs) Okay, thanks.
0: Anas fink Jensen is a professor of clinical psychiatry at the University of Copenhagen.
1: So, Tine, how do you keep up your motivation to exercise?
0: I have two big motivators. Their names are Luna and Rigby, my dogs, (laughs) and I also climb with a group of friends. So I suppose my main motivation is peer pressure-based. How about you?
1: I I run to eat. Run towards the table. That's right, so run away from it. But, you know, it's easy for us, we can make a choice. But there are people who are recovering from a traumatic brain injury and the stakes are higher for them. The amount of exercise they can do can either help them recover or set them back. Our reporter, Shelby Trainer, went along to the brain injury unit at Sydney's Liverpool Hospital to find out about a program meant to motivate patients at a critical time. And so when the
4: bike powers...
5: Off he goes. My nickname is Bilal the Adrenaline Junkie. So I'm an adventure freak. Pressure's
6: on Bilal. Bilal El Jamal is the perfect person to put this new kind of physical therapy to the test.
4: Yeah, he's trying to beat the ghost rider.
6: Because this self-described adrenaline junkie is competitive, even when he's in competition with a computer-generated avatar. You got it, Bilal. See, Bilal is riding a bike Almost. hooked up to a video game designed to motivate him to pedal harder and faster. Ah,
4: oh, second so off your best time. Time. <laughs> Very, very, very
6: good. He's not just doing it for the thrills. He's in recovery from a traumatic brain injury. On the 14th of
5: October 2020, I was on a uh, small, simple motorbike without a helmet and a car hit me. I fell on the ground and I hit my head and I had internal bleeding inside my head.
6: After the accident, Bilal was in a coma for 17 days.
5: I woke up and I couldn't talk nor walk nor swallow, nothing at all.
6: He was in Lebanon at the time, and after some initial therapy, he decided to move to Australia to further his recovery. That's how Bilal ended up at Liverpool Hospital in southwest Sydney, as a participant of an ongoing trial to gamify rehabilitation.
4: My name's Kavya Pili. I'm one of the senior physiotherapists here at the Brain Injury Unit.
6: Kavya is also the lead investigator for the Gamification Research Trial. I've always been really passionate about working with people with a brain injury and
4: obviously being a physio, we're always looking at ways to get our patients to perform their best. And one of the things that we really noticed is that Our patients who are engaging in fitness activities, they tend to get quite bored and they're not putting in as much effort. Walking on a treadmill or riding a bike, it's really hard to maintain that effort if you're just staring at a wall. And it's even harder for our patients who've had a brain injury and have difficulty paying attention and difficulty keeping motivated.
6: So the team at Liverpool Hospital, alongside experts at Western Sydney University, developed a game to capture and maintain motivation in patience. Participants jump on a recumbent bike, the same as you might have seen at your local gym. But what's different here is the screen mounted at eye level. On it is a computer-generated avatar developed to mimic the rider's speed.
4: Would you like to see it in action? I would love to see it in action. Yeah, of course, Bilal. Do you want to be our our model <laughs> what they do is they pedal on the bike and they see themselves pedaling on the screen on a racetrack they've got a resting lap where they're riding at a comfortable pace but normally because it's a resting lap he likes to stay quite comfortable yes. <laughs> then it says time lapse so then they have to go as fast as they can once they do a time lap they then get another resting lap and then there's another time lap and this time in the second time lap They've got a ghost rider that was riding at their previous pace, trying to get them to maximise their speed, and they're trying to beat their ghost rider. It's a constant motion of them cycling at a slow pace and then cycling at a really quick pace, with the aim of them keeping their heart rate up the whole time.
6: doctor Goff Gough-Loy is a research support fellow at Western Sydney University and Liverpool Hospital's biomedical engineer-in-residence.
7: I scope unmet medical needs and find technological solutions to their problems.
6: Dr Loy's job has been to develop the hardware for this trial, making sure the bike connects up with the game and vice versa.
7: We needed something to incentivise and encourage those in rehabilitation to put a little bit more effort in, to be more motivated during a very critical phase of their rehabilitation.
6: Patients who've had a traumatic brain injury aren't just pedalling on a bike to regain strength and endurance. This physical activity also helps with cognitive recovery. Research suggests gamification also promotes cognitive recovery by activating the brain's reward centre and firing up new neural connections. For Bilal... The game, and his own competitiveness, pushed him further along in recovery than he thought possible. He kept coming back to the bike again and again. How well do you reckon you know this scenery by this point?
5: I memorised the place.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know every curve and turn, Every, don't <laughs> every
5: turn. <sighs> I did it again. I broke my record. By one second or half a second. Then the next day... I also broke my record. So each day I was breaking my record. I was also increasing the level of uh, riding the bike. So I was uh, first I was at level seven, eight, 9, 10, 11.
6: Even on his final day at the brain injury unit, he wanted to give the game one last effort.
5: And I put it on level 15, which was the hardest level, but uh, I did it. I broke my record. This was the last day and I broke The record, again, I got it in 28.6 seconds, which was incredible for me. Yeah, so motivated for me. From 37 seconds to finish the lap to 28.6 seconds to finish the (laughs) lap.
4: I don't think anyone's been able to beat that (laughs) since then.
5: (laughs) Before uh, using the game, I would sit on the bike and there's nothing to... No record to break, and that's what I love to do.
6: Physiotherapist Kavya Peely again.
4: When they have the game in front of them, they could be cycling for 30, 40 minutes, as opposed to previously would it just be 10 or 15 and they'd be like, I'm done. And what we're noticing as well, that they're cycling at much faster speeds and their heart rate has been elevated for majority of the time. Having a visual cue and a visual prompt gets them to push themselves a bit harder. I think it's like when you're playing a computer game, you've got a challenge and you want to you keep working until you get the outcome.
6: But this trial isn't just about anecdotes. The team is in the middle of collecting the data they need to prove gamification is improving outcomes for patients so it might be used more broadly in the future. We're still in the
4: process where we're collecting data, so I'm not allowed to give too much. <laughs> but what I can say is that we are noticing that they are spending longer on the bike and that in most cases their heart rate measures are on the higher end, which is where we want them to be.
7: This is a good case of us being researchers, being able to do something that has impact and and is being used because the other thing we hear is that there's interest from the community in perhaps moving this into clinics and running it at home. And even within here, we've been asked can we put this on the treadmill as well? Why is it just a bike? Can we have something else? So I, I think that's all positive from our perspective in terms of where this might be going.
6: While the main goal of this trial is to increase motivation among patients and as a result improve outcomes, the competitive nature of the game draws in the therapists as well, keeping them engaged as enthusiastic cheerleaders on the sidelines. You're going to give
4: it one more go?
5: Yeah. The main thing is the motivation which they give to all the people that come here, and it's really honest. I could see in their face, I could see.
6: Oh, so close! Oh, yeah.
5: They want me to succeed, they want me to break my record. Brother. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Shall
0: Shelby trainer there with that story, but that's all we've got time for on The Health Report this
1: week. So we'll see you next week. See
0: you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.